0: If you have a high discount rate, you ought to use a higher growth rate as well. Any stock which was not like really, really cheap looked expensive in my model. And I ended up buying value traps, whereas I could have bought the best stocks out there. Hello, fellow risk takers,
1: and welcome to my worst investment ever stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A Stotts Investment Research and I'm here with featured guest Asif Khan. Asif, are you ready to rock? Yes. All right. So, let me tell you a little bit about Asif. Asif Khan is a CFA charter holder and member and he's managing partner at EDGE Research and Consulting Limited. EDGE is an independent equity research provider based out of Bangladesh, which caters to foreign institutional investors. Prior to starting EDGE in early 2018, ASIF had worked in both buy and sell side roles for around nine years. Nearly five of those years were spent with Caravel Management, an emerging and frontiers market fund where he looked at South Asian equities from Bangladesh. Later, he made a career switch to the sell side, where among other roles, he worked for Exotic Capital, a frontier market-focused investment bank based in London. So, Asif, take a minute, fill in anything missing from that intro, and tell
0: us something about your personal life. I think one part I may want to add is, I'm very actively engaged with CFA Institute in Bangladesh. I was a part of the team that engaged with the institute to form a society. We didn't have the adequate number of members here. And ever since I was the founding board member and uh, really engaged with a lot of different avenues there. And the really interesting part is, my wife is a CFA charter holder as well. So I think we are one of the rare ones in Bangladesh where both of us are CFA charter workers.
1: Yeah, well, we have that in common because I was also a founding member of the CFA Society Thailand and have been involved in it. And I must say that it has brought me many, many great friendships, including ours. So <laughs> it's, it's a great thing to be involved with from my perspective. So now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, Tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it, and then tell us your story.
0: Sure. I think in my case, you know, I thought very hard to decide what would be the the worst uh, investment ever, and which is why I took a bit of time in getting back to you as well in our discussion. So it has a kind of an interesting backstory, and it starts with how our market behaved in 2009 and 2010. In fact, from 2007 to 2010, the stock market had a massive rally. And at one time in 2010, the market had just doubled. And obviously, these kind of movements create euphoria. Valuations go up significantly. And and here's the interesting part. I got that right. I realized valuations were high. And I asked my firm to kind of start selling equities before the market crashed. And the signs were very clear that, Valuations were abnormally high. So I got that right. So post-2010, the market starts crashing. It's down 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. And by 2013, it was down 60%. So my worst investment ever actually comes with one right decision, which, which saved my company a lot of money and gave me a lot of credibility, a large part of that due to luck. But the mistake actually comes after 2013. So the actual mistake was in 2013, the market was extremely cheap, I could have picked out many stocks which were the top-notch companies, they were the market leaders, growing double digits, um, high return on capital, competitive advantages and most of these stocks if I had picked out in 2013, the stocks would have doubled or even tripled in a few years. So that opportunity was missed, and that opportunity was missed for a number of thinking errors on my part. Some were more technical thinking errors, basic DCF mistakes, but some was also confirmation bias, or just worrying that the macroeconomy is in a worse state than I originally thought. I I can actually spend some time discussing what really happened, and part of it has to do with the economic conditions back then, Inflation running at double digits, currency was depreciating fast. Most importantly, the health of the banking system was not good. So NPLs were high and not recorded properly. So they were massively understated. Banks were heavily exposed to the stock market and there was rampant margin lending um, around that time. And many stock market intermediaries didn't have the balance sheet capability or the strength to provision on those margin loans. So you always have this fear at the back of your mind that, you know, there can be margin calls. Stocks can go down much lower than where they went, even though they had come down 60%. And there's also this risk of systematic problem coming from the banking system. So those were the, you know, the broader issues, the the more macro issues. But I think on a more bottom-up level, there were mistakes uh, which are more technical in nature. So what happened as a young analyst, I I probably had about one or two years of experience. I thought that when inflation is high, you would revise up your discount rates. And I remember plugging in an 18% cost of equity because banks were borrowing at 13, 14%. But There were two clear mistakes with that. The first one, that's not generally sustainable. When you raise interest rates to solve inflation or currency problems, eventually, in most cases, the economy kind of stabilizes at some point. So it normalizes at a lower level. But also, if you have a high discount rate, you ought to use a higher growth rate as well. That was a very basic mistake that I made. And as a result, any stock which was not like really, really cheap, looked expensive in my model. And I ended up buying what I would say were more or less value traps, whereas I could have bought the best stocks out there. There's a lot that you've described that it'd be interesting,
1: but one of the questions is, from a mistake perspective, how painful was it? How significant was it of what you lost and what it meant to you
0: personally? From a psychological perspective, human beings feel more pain when things come down. That's typically the case. So the fact that I missed out on this massive opportunity in that period, I don't think it registered on me at first. But over time, I realized that these kind of buying opportunities don't come that often. Like a stock tripling or quadrupling in just a matter of years. And it's not just one single stock that I'm referring to, it's kind of quite a number of them. Those kind of opportunities are quite rare. I wouldn't say it was very painful, like I said, it, it didn't lead to my company going bankrupt. It didn't me, lead to me losing my job. I, I don't, so neither of those things happened. But it was definitely quite an important part. Uh, it played an important role in how I think and, and my risk tolerances as well.
1: So what lessons did you learn from this experience?
0: So The first lesson I thought uh, was the, the, the bottom-up part, really understanding how to form a proper DCF model. Um, so I spent some time, Looking at the McKinsey book, uh, the McKinsey book on valuation, just mm. rereading the chapters. I went through Michael mabusin's stuff. He has a lot of material on that. And in fact, more recently, I saw some of your material as well, uh, some of the basic DCF mistakes. So, so those kind of things, really thinking through those assumptions, having a consistency between my numerator and denominator, all those things, um, I, I spent quite a bit of time to ensure that my the models don't make fundamental mistakes. And secondly, when I'm thinking about stocks or stock allocation in general, I would say keeping in mind a lot of things are cyclical, interest rates, inflation, even economic activity like GDP growth, those, those indicators as well. So there is a bit of mean reversion in many of those cases. Just keeping that in the mind, it's not going to happen every single time. Uh, there are sometimes changes which are more permanent in nature. But just being aware can kind of uh, help one, like uh, avoid the mistakes that I have explained.
1: All right. So let me summarize what I'm taking away from your story and tell me if I missed anything. Uh, Basically, some of the things that you highlight are obviously there's, I've just written this book, nine valuation mistakes and how to avoid them. And mistake number eight is choosing an unrealistic cost of equity. And one of the things that I can say that I take away from this is it's a reminder also that besides the making sure that you have a clear connection between the numerator and the denominator of that fancy formula, the other thing we have to know is that when we're doing a calculation, where the inputs that we're putting into that calculation for the valuing of a stock using any DCF or discounted cash flow model is ultimately to infinity. I think one of the mistakes that people make is that when interest rates are low, they tend to input a very low discount rate, and when interest rates are high, they tend to input a very high discount rate. And therefore, they're they're missing the point that that discount rate needs to be applied to those cash flows over the next, let's say the next 20 years. The next 20 years, anything beyond 20 years is kind of of little little value, but for the next 20 years, chances are the interest rates are not gonna be either high as they were in your case, or low as they are, for instance, in the US. And I think this is a source of one of the reasons why markets tend to overcompensate because when we get in a situation where things are really bad and you know interest rates are really high, everybody says there's no value in these stocks. So that's the first thing I would take away from that. So we have to always make sure, and I think uh, for yourself, myself, we're always trying to make sure that we're keeping ourselves up to date and making sure that our calculations and our assumptions Our structure is right. Now, the second part that I take away from this is it's really hard when a market collapses and even when a market's collapsed by 60%. Generally, at that time, the news is negative. The feeling is negative. It's hard to take a positive stance. And when you open up the banking sector and the stock market, as you've described, with non-performing loans, maybe not accounted for, it's really hard to make a, a correct conclusion about the future for that market. And I think that what that leads us to is either to make a really a strong conclusion that A, it's time to get in, or a strong conclusion usually is I'm gonna wait until I get, get some confirmation or that type of thing. But I'd, I'd say part of the solution to this is building a diversified portfolio of good quality companies. And if you're building that portfolio and you keep looking at that portfolio over time, what's gonna happen is that you're not gonna be as focused on the concept of timing when you get in and get out. And so what I would say is that one thing I take away is when I'm dealing with a market that's down a lot and I'm nervous, could it go down more, maybe the best thing to do is to build a portfolio and start allocating to high quality. Now the problem that you face, and I know you probably face this in fund management, is that sometimes the things that go up if, this, if the market bounces are, is the junk. So you're like, oh, wait a minute, I should own the junk if the market's going to rebound. But I think that that's in some ways a short-term focus. We want to focus on good quality companies and a diversified portfolio. My work and research shows about 10 stocks is the right number. So that would be my takeaway. You have any, uh, anything that
0: I missed in that? Well, I think you have very correctly summarized the, the situation. It is absolutely much more difficult when you have all these margin issues and especially the health of the banking sector because there's no way to escape that if something like that happens you get hurt no matter what in yeah. across every sector. But one point I want to add is also on the discount rate. So what I have been I have started to do is I have started to use more normalized discount rates. So post 2013 when the macro economy did much well better. And when especially oil prices came down, it helped the Bangladesh economy a lot. It's a net importer of oil. We had a lot of liquidity interest rates kind of came down significantly. So as a result, I could have used a very low cost of uh, equity because uh, treasuries were yielding much lower. But I decided not to do that because that's not going to sustain. So so that was one change that I did from the past. And as far as the portfolio allocation part is concerned, yes, I think it makes a lot of sense to buy the best quality names, and that's the mistake that I did. I didn't buy the best quality names because they looked too expensive, uh, which wasn't the case. But when you are a global fund manager, sometimes you actually have the option of not allocating to a country at all. So that's when things start to get a bit more complicated, where that with these macro pressures, this risk of margin calls, maybe you want to sit that out. But often I think it's too late. Uh, Mm -hmm. By the time the, the economy starts turning around, the market has already gone up significantly.
1: Okay, so now we reach to the final part, which is the actionable advice. So based on what you've learned from this and your subsequent experience, What one specific action would you recommend for our listeners? And remember, our listeners are at different levels of skills in investing. What specific action would
0: you recommend to them? Just one so that they don't suffer your same fate. I think I would ask them to really understand the DCF valuation model. Because if you do that part right, you are avoiding a lot of the other parts, other problems. And the reason I talk about this is, the more larger questions of like how much exposure to equities, how much exposure to Bangladesh, right? These things as much, much as it they are theoretical by models driving them, it's also a, a lot psychological as well, right? A behavioral. And and that doesn't come overnight. It comes with a lot of experience. There's no magic formula to get that part right. Um, but the part that you can get right is, is the proper... Um, um, i building the proper valuation models. And, and that shouldn't take a lot of time and effort to really understand the, the concepts there, the logic there. Okay,
1: so there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we wrap up, Asif, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about your losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result.
0: Do you have any parting words for the audience? So thank you for inviting me. Investing is a long journey. Just keep on learning from your mistakes and other people's mistakes, and then it's going to be quite um, fruitful. All right. So again, thanks for another great
1: story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.